If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you now to go to John chapter 10 with me this morning. John chapter 10. <clears throat> We're going to look at specifically verses 7 to 13. John chapter 10, verses 7 to 13, which I will read momentarily. This weekend was a bit of a nostalgic weekend for me, and it wasn't some, I don't mean that because I planned it. Debbie and I have, our Saturdays are tried to be reserved for the honey-do list. Uh, Debbie takes care of children in our home, which means she's usually stuck inside the home most of the week, and so we relish our Saturdays as an opportunity to go and do our errands, and we do that together. It's almost like our date day. And uh, we were out to Walmart together, and we were walking out, and I walked right into someone that I had hired to work for me at Winner's over 20 years ago. And uh, we had a lovely time talking, and then shortly after that, we went down to the mall, and wouldn't you know it, just outside of Winner's, ran into somebody else that I had hired to work at Winner's, and uh, it was just kind of one of those days. And if you've ever done that where you've just... What seems to you to be happenstance where you run into someone, you often go, so how are you doing? That seems to be our go-to phrase. How are you doing? Well, I want to ask you all this morning, how are you doing for real? How's your life? Hmm. It's the middle of October. I was praying with the music team and I said, I... I always sense it in churches and family dynamics when there are seasons, times in a year, and you can just feel everybody hit walls, like fatigue, or you can sense that the days are going to get really short here really quickly, and it's going to get dark at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. For those of you in school, assignments come, the the job, that 8-hour day just seems to feel like 15 hours, and how's your life? Are you happy, fulfilled? For some of you here this morning, I think you're searching. You're searching for someone, a relationship, a friendship, or you're searching for something, meaning, purpose, a job, career. What's the one thing? What's that one event? What's that one person or that situation that you fear the most. If the phone rings and your call display says that name, you pause a couple of seconds longer to wonder, should I answer? If you see that person, should you talk to them? You wait fearfully for that email or that text. Who or what occupies your mind? It's funny because Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So my question for you this morning is, where is your treasure? Look at where your treasure is. Where do you spend most of your time? Or rather, maybe who do you treasure? Because whether you're here this morning and you're single or you're married If you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, or you're simply here this morning because someone's invited you and you're searching and you're not sure if you're a Christian, if you're living life, some of you may be perhaps as a fraud. You're trying to convince everybody, I'm good, I've got things under the control, or you can handle it. Some of you here and you battle anger. 
Some of you are hurting. Some of you are scared. For some of us in this room today, we're struggling right now with money. Or we're seeking comfort. Maybe some of you are wrestling with sexual identity. Maybe you're running or hiding your pain. Are you hiding a prevalent sin? Maybe you're not courageous enough to be honest with some of your questions and doubts. Maybe some of you here, and tragically, you may even be a bit blind to your own real needs or even delusional. You've got yourself convinced, I'm good, life's good, me and Jesus are good, only to be confronted with the reality that life is nowhere near as good as you think it is. And for some today, you might even be blinded by the lies you tell yourself, blinded by the lies that the world sells you in well-packaged commercials and advertising, or you're blinded by the lies of Satan. Let me be bluntly honest with you here this morning. I was thinking about this this past week. I've been a Christian now for almost 27 years. I've been a pastor for almost 25. It kind of shocked me when I realized my 25th anniversary as a pastor is just around the corner. And here's the one constant I've learned. I've learned that every leader will let you down. Every one of them. I've learned from attending different churches through my childhood, my youth, my young adulthood, and being a pastor, I've learned that every pastor will let you down. I've learned by being a son and then a husband and a father and a grandfather that family and friends let you down. Probably the greatest shock, which shouldn't surprise you or anyone, is I let me down. Yet, I want us to consider how Jesus Christ, the door to life, and the shepherd who cares, the matchless, beloved son, perfect in every way, will never let you down. Ever. And for some of you here today, in this very room, you are like Steve. That is like the cosmic killjoy beginning to any sermon you've ever preached. I know some of you here this morning are thankful and you're rejoicing and you're resting and you're truly leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus and that is wonderful and I rejoice with you. But that's why this passage in John 10 and our subject matter is exactly what every one of you need, including me. Because you see, Jesus in John 10 addresses religious people. He addresses the searching and the skeptic. He addresses the trusting and the worshiper and the follower and the marginalized. He pleads with the pretender. He offers encouragement and hope to the disciple. Indeed, if you and I here this morning will listen carefully, if you'll have a mind to hear, a heart to apply, and an attitude to trust, I promise every one of you in this room, God will speak to you. And so here we are in John chapter 10. I personally believe that John chapter 10 is the greatest chapter on the assurance of salvation in all of the four Gospels. The dialogue of Jesus, as you know, comes on the heels of what happened in John chapter 9. Never before had the miracle that took place there had been done in human history. Think about that. 
When you can say something has happened to me, or I saw something happen, or I was there with something happened that had never happened, not in a while, but ever in human history, when a man born blind receives his sight. And if you look at it, right, there's tension and questions. There's rejoicing and hatred. And it's all centered around Jesus. Don't forget, he's only months away, weeks away from the cross. In just a few, about 8 to 12 weeks from now, he'll be attacked and harassed, betrayed and abandoned, arrested and beaten, mocked and scorned and whipped and crucified for the very people that he's talking to in John chapter 10. Oh, and by the way, for you and me and us. This is the reality I preached to you this morning. This is the truth that I believe and many of you in this room will claim to believe. And that's the goal that the Apostle John sets out because he wants you to come to this profound decision and conclusion. And that's why he gives you his purpose statement. Here it is again, Calvary, at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But I have chosen these, John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here is the result. By believing, you may have life in his name. And so I'm going to ask you again, how's your life? Who or what are you clinging to? Do you believe this morning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you have life in his name? If so, then this passage will encourage you. It'll cause you to worship. It'll point you deeper into Jesus. You'll trust him with your life. But if you're here this morning and you happen to be the one that says, Steve, I'm doubting right now, I'm struggling. Then I promise you that John chapter 10 will assure you If you're here this morning and you would say, Steve, I'm afraid, then John chapter 10 will help you and calm your fears and alleviate your doubts. If you're struggling or pretending, if you're hiding or leading a double life, then this passage exposes the folly of that and invites you to something better. Freedom. Freedom from the slavery and fear of religion. Freedom, as our passage is before us today, tells us from thieves who steal and destroy and kill. John 10 is freedom from a false Messiah when we trust someone or something that will let us down. So let me read John chapter 10, verse 7. And Spirit of the living God, would he talk to us here this morning in October. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them again, after verse 6, where after he had given the illustration in 1 to 5, they don't get it. They're not understanding what he's saying. So he says, truly and truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Previously, he said that the gatekeeper would open the door to him. But now he says, I am the door. Now notice this claim, verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He had talked about that in the first five verses. But the sheep did not listen to them. Verse 9, I am the door. Here's an invitation. 
If anyone enters by me, he or she will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here's the warning. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Here's the hope. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now here's the next one. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, look at what he does. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. In verse 13, he flees. That's that hired hand because he is a hired hand. And notice these words, he cares nothing for the sheep. And this is the word of the Lord that I want to preach to you this morning. My first point taken from John chapter 10 verse 7 and 8 and 9 is I want you to notice this. It's in my title. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Is Jesus is the door to life. Jesus is the door to life. He begins with these words. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He does that because verse 6 tells us people weren't understanding his illustration from verses 1 to 5. He basically begins by saying in verses 1 to 5, I come to you. I come into your life. Jesus says, I come and the doorkeeper opens. He was talking about a sheepfold that was in the city. In the city they had a generalized sheepfold where all the shepherds could bring their sheep. And there was a hired person that marked that door. And only he would allow the right shepherd access to the sheepfold. And remember I told you a few weeks back, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And when he sings or he has a little little thing he does or the tone of his voice, only the sheep of that shepherd would come to him. So Jesus has just said, look, I come into your life. But now he is saying here in verse 7, here's what it looks like for you to come to me. I've come to you. Now, here's what it looks like to come to me. So he says, I am the door to life. I'm not just the door. I'm the door to life. I've come to you and you must now enter through me. He's making a fantastic claim to gain access to God as Father. You must do it through me. I'm the entrance. I'm the door through which the sheep enter the safety of God's fold, go out to rich pasture of His blessing. It is through Him that lost sinners can approach the Father and appropriate the salvation He provides. I don't know about you, but does this not sound like John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man or woman comes unto the Father but by me. This is what Jesus is saying. He's making an absolutely amazing claim. Not only has he just said, I am come, the Messiah, God in the flesh. But now he is saying, and you can't come to God except by me and through me. Dear friend that I look up to and admire, God has worked in her life. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. She puts it so well when we think of what Jesus says. She says this, confidence is acknowledging your ability to do a particular thing. Arrogance is forgetting that the ability came from above and not primarily from within. 
And that is why Jesus never says anything from arrogance. He can only say it from confidence because he has the ability to do. And as we learned, when Jeff and I and others were at a TGC conference back in April, we learned that Jesus is not both just able, he's willing. And this is what he's saying. He's willing and able so he can make this. Jesus is the doorway of life. You come in through him. You're let out through him. In fact... We're talking about a different sheepfold now. See, in verses 1 to 5, he was talking about a sheepfold in the city. Now, in verse 7 and 8 and 9, he's talking about a sheepfold out in the wilderness. In all of the commentaries I've read, they they particularly talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the greatest preacher, and this other guy who was considered the great archaeologist of the early 19th century into the 20th century. And he was went over to Palestine and studied for years shepherding. And the infamous, famous story of him meeting with a shepherd and talking about the sheepfold out in the wilderness. And he looked at it because it's very rustic. It's quickly put together. It's usually some rocks rolled up and some thistle put around it. And then he puts the sheep, his own personal flock, in that sheepfold. And the, the, the legend goes that this man said to the shepherd, Where's the door to your sheepfold? And he said, I am the door. Because when I put the sheep in... The habit is that the shepherd then lies across the opening. And so the only way for a wolf to get in is over him. And the only way for a sheep to get out is over him. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the door. Only Jesus is the true source of knowledge. And look at verse 9. He says, I give you salvation. I give you freedom. And I'll give you passage. J.M. Boyce, who was that pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, said, I am the door for the sheep, as our verse says. In this section, Jesus is the gate. He is speaking of leading his flock in rather than leading them out. He talks about the church itself rather than about calling the church out of Judaism. In other words, he is dealing now with a particular body of people committed to his care and he's revealing the relationship in which he stands to them. That's why I've said, Jesus is the door to life, your life. How's life for you? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Look again at verse 9. Jesus says, if you enter by me, you will receive this. Can I be so obvious as to ask the obvious question? Have you believed on him? It's not hard. There's no complicated course to follow. You see, if Jesus had compared himself to a wall, then I'd be preaching sermons about how to climb over the wall. If Jesus had compared himself to a long, dark passageway, then I'd be preaching messages about how long it's going to feel and how you might be afraid to go into the darkness of it. But Jesus didn't say he was a wall. He didn't say he was a passageway. He said, I am the door. I love my friend Jared Wilson. He puts it like this. Christ did not say, come to me all you who need self-improvement and I will give you steps. He said, come unto me all you who labor and I will give you rest. Because he's the door. 
Christ's sheep, you and I, if we know him, will experience God's love and forgiveness and salvation. And we get to go in and out freely, always having access to God's blessing and his protection. And we never fear harm or danger. We're going to find satisfying pasture as the Lord feeds them. Look at verse 10. And they will have abundant life. Not just life, but abundant life. That word means contented life. It's not saying that you're going to be free from danger. In fact, the Bible promises there will be dangers. Remember that old hymn, Till the storm passes by? Even drought in your life and famine in your life, still in the hands of the good shepherd, the sheep is content. That's the essence of Psalm 23. Have you ever really thought about it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Notice, he leads me beside still waters. Well, that means that I must need leading. If I need to be led to still waters, it must mean that there might be some not still waters around me. In fact, I have learned that a sheep will not drink from running water. Sheep will only drink from still water. And so the shepherd leads us out and he leads us by all that running water of life and finds us a pool where the water pools up and it's still. And he says, here you go. Now notice again, he makes me to lie down beside still green pastures. Have you ever realized? It's not he invites me to, not he hopes I will. Have you ever noticed the, the assertion of it? David says, he makes me to lie down. This is David saying this. The guy who got run out of his own city by one of his sons. The guy who had more betrayers and more armies and nations come up against him. The man that God said, your hands are too bloody to build my temple. This was the man who said, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Have you ever noticed how much the life of the sheep in Psalm 23 is surrounded by trouble and potential harm? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That doesn't sound like a Skittle's life. I will fear no evil. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Have you ever noticed that? But how does it end? Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life through the shadow of the valley of death, through the presence of my enemies, through the fact that I need to be made to lie down beside green pastures. I know that the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life, and I know I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know about you, but that sounds like abundant life to me. It's the life to be saved and to enjoy the life of pasture that Jesus is talking about. But notice, what's the alternative? Look at verse 8 because we see the wall of religion. Notice with me the wall of religion. Jesus says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now that phrase, all who came before me, should trouble you a little bit. Because when I read that, I'm wondering, is he talking about like all the prophets and all the priests, all the good guys, or just all the bad guys? I mean, all is a pretty encompassing word. I want you to realize, 
in light of the fact that the Pharisees are there, he's in the temple, in light of the fact that his authority is being challenged, false messiahs, this is a direct attack on false messiahs, false religion that's been plaguing Israel for thousands of years. Jesus is declaring emphatically to a man born blind, by the way, who had just been kicked out of the temple, I am better than all those. But I actually think there's a secondary meaning. I think he's even declaring, not only do I appreciate those who've announced me, but I'm better than those who announced me. You remember what John the Baptist said? When people came to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie up. Remember that famous verse he says? He must increase and I must decrease. He's dealing with an audience that idolized Moses. They worshipped, in some cases, David. They longed for John the Baptist back. And Jesus says, in both confrontation and comfort, I am better than them all. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name name. You see, the wall of religion, these false gods, will not only steal from you, but they will hurt you and ultimately kill you. That's why he says they've come to rob you and to destroy you and to kill you and leave you with nothing. Don't forget who the audience is. There's a man standing there that had been born blind. He's received his sight. And religion didn't invite him into the temple. They banned him from it. He had just been unburdened from the greatest trial of his life. And their reaction? Burden him up again. And that's what religion does. More blocks. More shame. More guilt. You'll never measure up to us. You'll never accomplish us. How do you think these words rang in the mind of this man? How do you think they responded? How do you think the disciples and the crowd Heard these words from Jesus. I am the door. If you'll come to me, you'll have abundant life. All before me are thieves and robbers. They take from you. What do you think the reaction of religion was? When we come to the end of this chapter, you'll know. They wanted Jesus dead. But notice now, the shepherd who cares. Look at verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. That's the fourth of the I am statements. Jesus started by saying, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, I'll satisfy you. That's what he said in John chapter 6. In John chapter 7, he said, I am the light of the world. And here in John 10, he said, I am the door. And now he says, I am the good shepherd. And notice, it says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This statement that's on the screen behind me is used three more times by Jesus in this passage. In John chapter 10 verse 15, again in verse 17, and again in verse 18. So in this little dialogue, four times, four times Jesus wants the man born blind and the religious leaders and the disciples, and the crowd, and you and I to know and remember and to think about that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and the difference between the thieves and the robbers, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now think about that word good. 
You don't see that word very often in the Gospels. If you remember back in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, a rich young ruler would come to Jesus and say, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what's more is that not only is he a good shepherd, but he's the good shepherd. He doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now think about that. You see, here's my theory about us in our humanity. I believe that almost every one of you in this room longs and wants to believe that Jesus is the good shepherd. I think we instinctively want that. I mean, think about the word itself. Again, my friend J.M. Boyce says the word means good in the sense of being morally good. But it also means beautiful and winsome and lovely and attractive or even possessing all and whatever qualities make the object described a good thing or the person a good person. So Jesus is saying, if we compare Christ, I am the good shepherd with his parallel, I am the true bread or I am the true vine, we see that the word means genuine and true as opposed to false and artificial. So in fact, as I reminded you a few weeks ago, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the preacher of Hebrews calls him the great shepherd, and Peter would call him the chief shepherd. So here's my question, church. Do you trust Jesus as these things? When you go and do life this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, at school, at work, at home, is Jesus the good shepherd? Again, I think we long this to be true. I think we admit we need a shepherd. I don't meet too many people that don't think we need help. We need something. We need someone. But I do think and believe that in the world and even in our churches in Canada today, there's a pandemic. And here's what it is. All that social media has done and gotcha media and the fact that we now have nowhere to hide and almost every way in shape and form, we can find out the deep crevices of our heart. We have a pandemic trust issue. We don't Trust people. The thing that gets told to me as a biblical counselor more is can I trust Jesus? I can't trust my spouse. Can I trust my pastor? Can I trust my mom and dad? Can I trust my kids? Can I trust my boss? Can I trust the bank? Can I trust this credit card? Can I trust my car? Can I trust? And the answer overwhelmingly is no. But the old hymn says, Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord and he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Why? Because Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay and you will be fully blessed. So only trust him Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. Why? Because He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Jesus is the good shepherd because He lays down His life for the sheep. I'm going to unpack that fully next week. But Jesus promises here to provide rest for your soul. Listen to me now. That means your mind, your heart, stress, anxiety, 
depression, and fear. Jesus provides guidance for life. Now think about it. If you're here in your singleness, he provides you guidance. In your marriage, he provides you guidance. In parenting, he provides you guidance. Whether it's money, or sex, or gender, or jobs, or careers, or school, or cars, or homes, or fame, or activities, family, relationships, friendships, hurts, tragedy, sickness, and even death. Jesus and only Jesus gives us answers, and hope, and power, and strength, and wisdom. He provides security. So church, notice in just this one little phrase, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know what that means by implication? It means it's voluntary. No one is forcing Jesus to do this. No one's manipulating him. He doesn't lay down his life from obligation or from guilt or shame. It is pure mercy and grace. It's love in the person and love in action. It's a God-glorifying choice. Nor is the death of Jesus an accident. It's not a tragedy. You see, when Alexander the Great died at 33, I learned a poem in high school about how Alexander the Great and Jesus both lived to be 33 and the juxtaposition of their lives. When Alexander the Great died, it was considered a tragedy. When Jesus, it was a victory. Again, Boyce says, this was and is the great turning point of history. It was planned before the foundation of the world. For Peter spoke of Christ saying, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. He said, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people from their sin. Jesus' statement is of great importance. He lays down his life for ours. So it's not only voluntary, he is our substitute. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And vilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus lived the life for us that you and I could never live. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. Countless kings and prophets and priests couldn't do it. Untold thousands of sacrifices in the temple couldn't do it. Only the door to life, the good shepherd, could lay down his life voluntarily as our substitute. And why does he do it? Romans chapter 5 tells us. In verse 6, Paul says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies 
We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received, notice this word, reconciliation. So listen to me. We are sinners. And so we sin. And Jesus comes like one of us to do for us what we could never do. He dies the death we deserve, bears the wrath and justice of the holy, holy, holy God that Matt told us about last week. He is perfect for us and yet dies for us. And he does all this because he is the good shepherd. He's the bread of life. And we've got to nourish ourselves on him. And he's the light of the world so only he can light up our life. He is the door to eternal, abundant life. No one, nothing will fill your life and bring peace into your life, make sense of your life, give you hope in your life, point out the purpose of your life, give your life meaning and value and heal and care for you like Jesus. No pastor will, no church, no spouse, no girlfriend or boyfriend, no book, no organization, no career, no job, no bank account will ever do for you what only Jesus can. He is a voluntary, substitutionary Savior. But notice the sacrifice is specific. I will lay down my life for the sheep. It's only for those who Christ has entered their life and they have entered Through him. It's not just for any sheep. It's for his sheep. The ones that come to him. And then look at verse 13. When he tells us about how the fact that the hired hand doesn't care for them. By purpose and default we know that it means he cares for us. Jesus loves you. Matthew chapter 9 tells us that Jesus has compassion On us as sheep without a shepherd. John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that God loved us not just with love but with a great love. This is truth. This is reality. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Jesus is the good shepherd. He voluntarily, substitutionally, specifically, and lovingly lays down his life for you and me and us. He's the Messiah. And Jesus tells us why you need to trust him. Why you need to trust him and not money. Why you need to trust him and not people and not religion, not yourself, not power or fame or sex or pleasure or kids or a job or a career or a spouse or a parent or an animal or a house or a car or a watch. You, others, and stuff will never do for you what only Jesus can, which is lay down his life for you. Everything else takes from you. Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, lover of your soul, your redeemer, your savior, your intercessor, your advocate who never leaves you nor forsakes you, never lies to you, is present with you, strengthens you, will come back for you, is going to take you to himself and you'll enjoy him for eternity. 
And everything he asks of us is for our good. Everything he tells us not to do is to protect us. He'll always be there for us when we fail. He alone will protect you from yourself and from evil and from Satan and from the world and from others. He never gets tired. He never runs out of patience. He's never too busy. He never ignores us. He never gets angry or frustrated. Yes, amazingly and lovingly, he points us to the obvious and long-suffering. And he says... I'm your shepherd. Because the opposite of that, your alternative as I close, in verses 12 and 13, is the fraud who abandons. Notice what it says. The hired hand, the underling, the one who is not the shepherd. He's the one that runs away. When the wolf comes, he leaves. And so the wolf gets in and he chases and he kills and he scatters. Does that not sound like so many prosperity pastors today? Tragically, too many of our modern evangelical denominations have created structures where we recruit the best personalities for the pastorate, then we teach them to climb the ladder of success. So youth ministry turns to young adult ministry. Then they climb to an assistant pastor, and then an associate pastor, and then a senior pastor. And you need to track, have a track record of success, for that will get you to call to bigger and bigger churches. And we're all tempted to be part of a bigger church with bigger buildings and Better programming, but what about character? Where are the shepherds of men and women's souls? Where are the Christian sons and daughters who will, like David's mighty men, serve God with no name or fame? Where are those who delight to sit in a hospital or pile wood with a helping brother or just be a better dad? Have we elevated the Sunday service to a spectacle of one-stop celebrity pastor or a showcase of church? Not realizing that when people hurt, when you and I need help and shepherding, very rarely is it going to happen in a huge service. Corporate worship may heal or prompt or nudge or move or point out, but the very reason we have altar calls is still because you need to talk to a person. You need someone to pray with you. A person. See, church, you and I need Jesus and we need each other to point and pray and talk each other to Jesus. This past week alone, no matter how good or bad I preach, it will never and would never replace the time I needed to have one-on-one with folks to listen and to talk and pray, to laugh and cry and instruct and feel their pain, rejoice in their victory, and suffer with them in their trials. In the last eight days, as I watched Simon and Lydia come down over an escalator with their daughters with tears flowing down their cheeks and they hugged onto me whom they had never met personally and they simply had joy, I realized what I did there I can never do from this pulpit. When you get a call at 10.30 on a Saturday night from a fear, a fearful spouse who can't get a hold of her husband because her husband has said he's going to kill himself. And you desperately try to get that man on the phone. And you cry with him and you pray with him and you make sure that he won't take his own life tonight while his children are asleep in the next room. And you realize what shepherding is all about. Jesus reminds us that money will run away from you and parents will fail and divorce will happen And even people will pass away. 
A spouse will fail you, and if you're trusting in your kids, they will never sacrifice for you like Jesus, nor can they be a substitute for Jesus. A job will not give you peace, nor a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Power or ministry won't sacrifice it for you. Indeed, Jesus tells us the door to life and the only good shepherd of your soul is himself. And you need to tell yourself that story over and over again. The wolf always comes, whether it's expected or unexpected. The wolf can sometimes be an unexpected bill, bill or a failed marriage or a broken relationship or a wayward child or a diagnosis of tragic, chronic or terminal illness or a lost job or home repairs. Whatever your idol, whatever person or place you have put your faith and trust in, when it's attacked and the wolf comes, Jesus says the hired Messiah runs away in fear. Parents, how many times have you told your children the difference between friends and acquaintances? Remember the prodigal son who took all of his money in Luke 15 and went away and he had all kinds of friends when he had money, but in 15, 16, and as he was longing to be fed with the pods that that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Jesus tells us when the hired hand sees the wolf, he runs. And the reason is because verse verse 13 tells us because he doesn't care for the sheep. And so what do we do with this? In Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4, it says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So as you leave here this morning, church, remember this. Jesus is the door and the shepherd who saves. He saves. But you and I must come to him and through Jesus. There's no one else There is nothing else that can save you and give you abundant life. Church, Jesus is the door and shepherd who keeps us safe. A.W. Tozer said, The only safe place for sheep is by the side of the shepherd. I love this because the devil does not fear sheep. He just fears the shepherd. And Jesus is the door and the shepherd who satisfies. Why do you need to read your Bible and pray every day? Why do you need community? Because it's safe. When you are spending time with Jesus and talking to Him and having Him talk to you, that's the safe place. That's the quiet place. That's the place of peace. Why are some of you running away from Jesus when He is your access to God? He's your shepherd. How's your life? Jesus is also the door and shepherd who we can trust. Scotty Smith says it so well. God is pursuing a people for rich relationship, not for empty ritual. And it is quite possible to be scrupulously committed to the details of one's religion and utterly miss the riches of biblical salvation. And then finally, Jesus is the door and shepherd who is sovereign. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you. Now, let's pray. God, our Father, as the music came and the choir comes, I think there's 20 people in the choir and music team. So, Lord, I know that there's even people walking to this platform who need to be reminded that you are the door to life and the good shepherd. Who cares? 
I know there are people sitting in the pews before me who needed this message, not because I preached it, but because, Lord, every one of us needs to be reminded that you're there for us. You're the access that we need and must have. So, Lord, as we now sing our closing hymn, and life will now come at us at 500 miles an hour as soon as we open that door. Oh, God, if you are spiritually moving in someone right now who has pain, sin, questions, doubts, joys, or praise to offer you, may this season of singing give them a vehicle by which they can come to you, and may they be driven not to let the sirens of the world drown out the whisper of God. Heal us, Lord. Show us the beauty of you being our door and our good shepherd. Because truly, all we have is Christ. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,